0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Released in 2006 in the Civil War era of Spain in 1944, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. Hey, movie friends, welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James, and Pan's Labyrinth is a beautiful but tragic film. Um, Guillermo del Toro is one of the most creative directors, I would say, working today. He's, you could call him like the master of monsters. Not just because he creates unique monsters, but he th- they symbolically represent the themes of the film or represent characters in the film outside of the monster realm. And I think he just has a, a beautiful aesthetic in all his films, specifically this one. Um, I'm a huge fan of his work. I love... Obviously, Blade Two is such such a cool film. I remember Mimic seeing that when I was young. Um, Hellboy is great, but then Crimson Peak is an underrated movie of his. So he's just a great tour filmmaker that we're just lucky to have working. What about the Oscar-winning Shape of Water? Shape of Water, of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Shape of Water is great. Yeah, I, I love Guillermo. And what's so cool about him is he's a contradiction because if you see him on interviews and press and stuff, he seems so nice and warm and genuine and very kind and soft-spoken and but his imagination gets so dark and fantastical. And have you ever heard of his monster house that he has at a, in his home? Well, his home is a, it's a, it's basically like a monster house where inside of his home he has like all sorts of like disturbing, horrific like paraphernalia from movies and and comic books and like like crazy statues and all sorts of set pieces and the craziest items you of the macabre and fantastical. And it's like, and he, he also has a room in his house that rains. It's oh, yeah, called, it's called like the Rain Room. You so, told me that. So he's he. I think he he has a very childlike love of storytelling, and he and he obviously gravitates towards the fantastical and um, creatures and and monsters and stuff. But he, I think he, he You can compare him to actually Wes Anderson because they both tell fairy tales for adults. Wes Anderson does the same thing. His movies are whimsical, light, fun fairy tales for adults, whereas Guillermo. He tells us about dark, uh, disturbing, fantastical, mythological fairy tales for adults. Yeah, and... Just to stay on the monsters and that tone and the aesthetic of this horror that he has, his mentor was actually Dick Smith, who's one of the most influential special effects makeup artists of all time. And this guy had a legendary career, Dick Smith, including The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, The Godfather. So that's just an idea to give you the kinds of movies he was working on before he passed. And he was a pioneer in the field of prosthetic makeup effects. And he changed Guillermo del Toro's life by taking him basically under his wing and helping shape his career as a young artist because Guillermo... Um, was dying to work with him as a as a young kid um in mexico when he was getting those those prosthetic makeup horror kits to do his own short films and, and stories his own his own monster prosthetics but he eventually came under the tutelage of dave Dick Smith and it, he helped shape this phenomenal artist where guillermo just you can tell this guy's brain is just full of creativity and who knows what it looks like in there and one of my one of my favorite things about him is he has a the sketchbooks that he comes up with, all his ideas, he has tons of them and drawings and, and just plot points where his movies and his stories come from. And it's cool to just look up those images of those drawings that he comes up with because he's very talented artist in general. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like messages, personalized videos, podcast schedules, top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast, and also we do monthly contests for patrons only so you'll be able to get entered into that automatically every month. And he's actually very good friends with Alfonso Quaran and Alejandro Niruto. and they're like a, a, a group of, of young... Mexican filmmakers, when they met, and they've known, each, they've all known each other for a very long time, and they came up together in Mexico and also in Hollywood. And it's been so great to see that the three of them have each won their own directing Oscars over the past um, eight years, and uh, they've basically dominated the landscape of of, of film in Hollywood, and um, they've brought. Their, their Mexican heritage and, and their storytelling and their Mexican roots into Hollywood and America in an amazing way. And I, I love that all three of them have found so much success because the three of them are extremely talented and they're all very different. And uh, Guillermo um, puts his own print on his film. And I, I think that you can compare him also to like someone like J.K. Rowling where his, his movies, um, he, he bases a lot of his ideas and themes off ancient mythology um ancient storytelling and he brings those ancient stories ideas um beings and he he puts them into his own stories and that's basically what jk rowling did with harry potter where there it's ancient myths it's uh, religious myths that she wove into the stories of harry potter like and same thing with like if you look at the hobbit the the hobbit is the same thing as chamber of secrets which is an ancient story of man um battling uh A dragon or a beast and these are all ancient stories and Guillermo is a a storyteller that brings these ancient stories into modern culture. Yeah and quickly speaking of Alfonso Cuaron he actually is a producer on this film and he and Guillermo put up the first hundred thousand dollars for this film to get made because no studio wanted to give Guillermo money for this even though he had just done Blade 2 he just did Hellboy which a lot of people really liked and a lot of studios wanted him to do a new superhero movie something like that but he's like I want to do this it's a passion project and Um, The studios wanted him to also make it in English to increase his budget, but Guillermo ended up sticking to his gun, sticking to his gut feeling and his, his passion for the story got it made on 19 million dollars and he refused any salary and even any back-end money so i don't even think he's made a dime off pan's labyrinth yeah he didn't get paid at all and they the studios wanted to give him a ton of money like tens of millions to make it an american film but obviously his story is his own and um he thinks he felt that to make it an english language film would to would be a detriment to his his story and what he had in mind for for telling this film and and he also wrote the subtitles himself for English because he doesn't trust translators. Because I've, I, know he said he's had issues with translators in the past with the, his films translating to them to English. And he's bilingual, obviously. And this was an entire Mexican. Um, this was an entire Spanish crew, so everyone was everyone on the crew spoke Spanish. In the cast, except for Doug Jones, who plays the Fawn and the Pale Man, He's often works with Guillermo as kind of like his monster actor guy in a way. Yeah, Doug Jones has also played um, Ape Sapien in Hellboy, and he also played the Chamberlain and the Angel of Death in Hellboy, too, as well. And he plays the Fishman in Shape of Water. Yeah, so Doug had to actually learn Spanish and try to focus on his dialect to actually run the lines with the characters, well, specifically with Ophelia in the film. Um, and even though they ended up overdubbing it with a Spanish actor, Volk for vocal work for, for it to sound authentic, it's good that he still had that passion to try to learn the language, try to learn the dialect and the pronunciation so that when they did do the voice dub over, it looks like a flawless transition with his mouth. Doug Jones is is an unsung hero of these Guillermo del Toro movies because it's it's very much like Andy Serkis doing motion capture where he's covered in these prosthetics, uh, whatever monster or creature he's playing, even if it's a main character. Um uh, and he's such a talented physical performer. Every single being that he plays in, in Del Toro's movies is, is so unique and, and memorable. And I think that he must be extremely passionate about what he does because no one recognizes him. No one knew, knows who he is. But he's a major part in many of Del Toro's movies. And he's, the re- he's also the reason why movies like The Shape of Water work so well because he, he makes that character, that fish man, um, it makes he makes it personable and relatable and uh, nuanced, and he does the same thing with the Fawn here, where the Fawn he is a he seems to be like a nefarious character. You aren't sure who if he's a good a good part of the story, a good guy or a bad guy. And I think that Doug Jones's performance um, brings these layers to the Fawn that makes it such an interesting and complex character in this film. Yeah, I agree. And let's talk about him in a little bit, but I want to start on like the the main cast specifically. Ivana baquero who is absolutely phenomenal in this movie, is Ophelia. And Guillermo originally wanted the character of Ophelia to be younger, around like eight, nine years old. But Ivana came in and she was like, I think, 11 or 12 when she was cast. And she was so exceptional. And he kind of just fell in love with her as an actress in her performance that he worked the script differently so that it could be a, an older child for the story. And this film is a fairy tale and like you were talking about earlier how guillermo he he uses a lot of mythology to kind of adapt or put into his films and the thing with this movie specifically compared to all of his all of his films i think pan's labyrinth it feels the most like like it's an old ancient fairy tale that's been told over centuries that's how that's how deep it is and that's how strong the creativity and aesthetic of it are and you can tell the the love that he put into this film because of how exceptional is but it just feels like one of those stories that's passed down another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to do's bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank slash talk to us what would you like the power to do From generation to generation but it's insane that it came from him by himself and what i really adore about this movie is how dark it is and how how disturbing it can be like don't let yeah, your kids watch this, this is not <laughs> this is not a kid's movie it, this is like i said earlier it's an adult fairy tale adults just there's a reason why it's rated r like there's some serious gore. there's some really th- disturbing images and moments in this movie that um younger viewers shouldn't shouldn't be exposed to at such a young age so uh, there's actually a, there was a problem in spain in Mex- I think in Spain, Mexico and Spain, Me- in both both countries, yeah. when this film came out, because a lot of parents took their kids to see this movie, thinking it was like, oh, it's a kids' movie. Um, I guess not paying attention to the rating close enough, but uh, a lot of kids were very uh, disturbed by what they saw because there's some there's some harsh imagery in this movie, and, and the villain Captain Vidal is a very dark character, and he does some very heinous acts in this movie. But I think that's what works so well about this film because we're so used to like fairy tales it's like it's disney and they're always very fluffy and the villains are always like yeah they're evil but like they're not doing anything horrible or disturbing they're not beating a man's face in with a glass bottle exactly so it's like we we've, we've always had like they've always been g or pg rated so they've always just been very kid friendly these fairy tales but in throughout history fairy fairy tales actually have been very dark if you look at the the brothers Grimm, their story the, their stories were very dark, the hands-on Gretel story Stories like that that they wrote Very dark, very disturbing things in it So I think uh, Del Toro Is is hearkening to those Ancient fairy tales, those older fairy tales Where they are written for adults And bad things happen to the characters And this is his interpretation Of that kind of storytelling Before we continue, we have some breaking news This is an important PSA Brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com manscaped in their engineering team has just confirmed that they've successfully created the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer which is available for purchase in the united states and canada and we are some of the only people on the planet right now that has these in we've been testing them out obviously we've been using them the best clippers i've ever had in my life besides the 3.0 that we had before over 2 million men worldwide are trusting Manscaped for all their grooming needs. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at Checkout for 20% off in free shipping. I highly recommend their performance packages. It comes with the clippers, it comes with boxer briefs, deodorizers, cologne. It's got a bunch of different products in this box. It's a perfect gift for all the men in your life. Fellas, you gotta get on manscaped.com. Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping for all your grooming needs. Let's go. Yeah, speaking of Disney, you could say that Walt Disney basically monopolized these folk tales because what he did was he he adapted them, and then he copyrighted them. And it was genius, and they're very successful, in their classics and they're classics. But like you said, those, those fairy tales, they all have similar themes. They're very light at the end. Obviously, there are horror elements to some of them, for sure. I'm not going to say there aren't. There are some scary moments, I mean... Bambi's pretty dark. It, it, there are dark yeah. moments in these in these movies, but it generally follows the same uh, like structure. You know, a prince saves a princess; they live happily ever after. The villain dies by falling off something, you, and you never really see um, Disney villains actually die. Like they'll often fall off a ledge or whatever, and they just fall into the distance, and that's basically the the most graphic scene you'll see in a Disney movie. Yeah, but he also has a ton of fairy tale references in. Pan's Labyrinth, including Ophelia's new red shoes at the end of the film when she's in her underworld kingdom reclaiming her throne. That's a reference to Dorothy's red shoes, red slippers in The Wizard of Oz. Um, Ophelia entering the tree can be a reference to Alice in Wonderland tumbling down the rabbit hole. Uh, Pale Man is a reference to uh, other child-eating ogres in folklore. And uh, the toad underneath the tree could be a reference to the frog prince story. where kissing the frog. Yeah, kissing the frog and turning into a prince. So I'm sure there's a bunch of others that I missed, but that's like when I watched it, those are the ones that I noticed and picked up on. And I I really adore... I mean, you could compare... the fairies to Tinkerbell. For they, sure. They look a lot like Tinkerbell where they wear a very similar garb and get up. But I love how the production design team they had the fairies like have leaf wings to give them like this organic element and quality, just like the Fawn. I love the design of the Fawn where it's not just like a goat man, which is like ironically he Guillermo It's not tur- James McAvoy. Yeah, well Gamble <laughs> G- <laughs> actually turned down Chronicles of Narnia. Oh really? And, um uh, and that has an actual fawn with James McAvoy playing one and but Fawn is a goat human, but they did it in such like an elemental earth quality in this film where he's like, looks like a combination of tree and wood and, and stone and, and, earth, and yeah. earth. Yeah, just elements of, of the earth, which is so yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that makes sense because he tells uh, Ophelia that he's so old that only like the trees can know his name. So that's how ancient it is. Like he's like oh, as old as the forest that they're surrounded by. Yeah, and there's really two stories going on, two storylines going on throughout this film. Um, we have the 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 reality of Ophelia's life as the son of this woman who just—I mar- mean, the daughter of this woman who just married a horribly evil captain in this fascist army. And I think this is like about like at the end of the Civil War era, where the fascism is starting to take over and eliminating all the rebel forces at the time. of Captain Vidal is just this horrible person who is basically using. Her mother, Ophelia's mother, Carmen, is just a vessel for an heir to his supposed throne in his mind. And And, then... Oh, there's actually a great nod to his obsession with his son. When he greets the girls, Ophelia and her mother, he actually says, Bienvenidos, which is a welcome for, um, in the masculine tense... Whereas if it's two women and you say uh, hello and welcome to them, you would say bienvenidas, but he says the masculine on purpose because he's basically just welcoming his son only. Yeah, we'll get to his character in a little bit. But then the other storyline is this fantasy world that Ophelia has entered, which starts when she comes across that like ancient stone structure and she puts the eye back in and then the fairy grasshopper little thing comes out and that kind of kickstarts this this fantasy of hers that she's living out and it's like these two storylines that go on throughout the entire film until they collide at the end and guillermo just does a great job blending them together and referencing each other and the transitions that he does from reality to fantasy is brilliant whether he does it with um pans with 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 trees trees or he does it with audio too with the, the the wings flapping and it's just a beautiful story of just two storylines and i love the idea of is ophelia's storyline of her being this princess from this underworld is it real or is it imagined and i love that you can play around with it in your head of what you what you think is real or not yeah because you could look at it as her imagination because she's using this fabrication as a way of escaping the the harsh realities of her life um and so you can definitely and kids have such vivid imaginations especially some more than others and uh, she could be escaping the real world into this fantasy world she's created for herself but i like to but you can also look at it as real and i i like i think it's more fun when you consider things like this whenever there's a movie and it comes into question was it real wasn't it real i think i always i always prefer to say it's real because that makes the story better and i think that um, if you take, a, if you say, "Oh, something's not real," or I, I think it was just all in their imagination, it kind of takes, a, it sucks the life out of the movie. Yeah, an inter- interesting thing that Guillermo does with this movie is he opens up the film with the the end of the movie. He opens up the shot. Obviously, spoiler alert, to this point, we've we've been pretty good. He opens the shot of Ophelia dying, dead, and he reverses it as we go into the story into the fairy tale world. And that's actually a moment where you can question whether it was all in her imagination because he does the same thing that Bong Joon-ho did in Parasite where, where he ends the film not in the imagination fantasy but back on the lead character in their grim situation and um, Del Toro does the same thing in this film where um, Ophelia she seems to pass on to the afterlife where she is greeted by her immortal family who are king and queen in this underworld and everything seems great but then del toro cuts back to ophelia and the last thing we see is ophelia seems to recognize that she's made it to the afterlife but she's not dead yet and then we we actually see her take her last breath and then she dies in reality so that is a moment where it can make you question whether it is imagination or not yeah and i love ophelia she's such a great character she's She's this young brave, curious girl who's grown up in a, a tragic environment I mean the the Civil War of Spain is was a horrific event and it kind of is not disappeared from memory but it's overshadowed by World War II which started taking place right towards the end of it. So it's kind of forgotten in international history. I mean, I don't think we ever learned about it really in school. and so I think because it w- didn't have an, as an expansive impact as yeah. World War II. But you can imagine if World War II didn't happen, it'd be one of the biggest wars you heard about in history because it, it ravaged the country of, of Spain. And it was during uh, Francesco Franco when he was the fascist dictator leader who took over Spain and ruled even after the time of this movie until 1975 as dictator, assuming the title Cuadillo. And the Civil War in Spain was horrific. It occurred, again, right around the same time as World War II. Yeah. Um, Spain was dealing with the same thing that Italy was dealing with, with Mussolini, who was also a fascist leader of that country. But the Civil War in Spain, I think what Guillermo does with this film is he's trying to show— he's trying to keep the memory of it alive, and he's trying to represent the people who were lost and forgotten or the people who died during that period— who are just trying to survive and get by. And the story, obviously, Captain Vidal represents the fascist regime that took over. And then Ophelia and her and her family can obviously represent the innocent people who suffered because of it. You, you could also look at it as Captain Vidal is a very similar archetype to Michael Shannon's character in Shape of Water. Where what Guillermo does is you have this movie where there are monstrous creatures... And it's fantastical, and there's uh, you, you expect that the monster would be this horrible creature-like villain, and that there is like the pale man, and he's a horrible villain. But what he does with Vidal is he shows that uh, the wor- the biggest monster, the worst monster in this world is is a man, and, and I think he's he's reflecting that that human beings are capable of monstrous acts, and human beings can be their own villains in the world, and sometimes even the worst villain you face in your life is yourself. And so I think that Guillermo recognizes that we all have the ability to become a monster to some capacity based upon experience or whatever things that could happen to you or whatever. And I think that Ophelia represents the innocence within us, especially that we have when we're children and that we're born with where Ophelia is young and she's pure and and she's innocent and she's done no wrong. And um, I think that they are... contrasting characters for that reason before we continue i have to tell you about movieposters.com the number one place to get your posters online today head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code raiders15 again raiders15 to get 15 percent off your order today movieposters.com is the number one place to get your posters online don't go on amazon i know it's free shipping but the quality is horrible movieposters.com has the best quality you can pay for Framing, backlighting, all sorts of sizes. Pretty much every movie imaginable, MoviePosters.com has it. If you're looking at our set on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, you'll see that it's decked out with these amazing posters. Again, don't forget to use our special promo code, Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. And Ophelia, she's basically on this magical quest. She's finds out from this phone that she's this lost princess of an underground underworld kingdom and a kingdom that knows no pain or fear only a, of peace and happiness which is really all she wants so that's why when you go back and forth between is this all real is it a coping mechanism is she's trying to make up for the fact that she's known nothing but poverty and, and pain and she's trying to create this fantasy to deal with her day-to-day life and she moves there with her mother to this this base camp you could say and carmen is she's really just trying to do what's best for her daughter what she thinks and i think what she does is she marries and this powerful man this well-off man um to have safety for her family and she loves ophelia very much but she doesn't understand her daughter's fascination with fairy tales and books and and this odd behavior that she has and Carmen is definitely one of the biggest victims of the film because not only does she have interactions with Ophelia that are negative, but also she's basically controlled by Captain Vidal, and Vidal has no emotions for her whatsoever. Again, shes he's using her just to create a baby, and he assumes it's going to be his son because he's so confident and full of arrogance. Yeah, and he displays dominance upon everyone that surrounds him, and he's a very dominant figure. Like, when Carmen first steps out of the car, the first thing... Uh, vidal does is order that she sit in a wheelchair for indefinitely because he doesn't want anything to go wrong with the with the birth of his of his son yeah and he's a truly evil person monster on earth one of the most horrific villains you'll ever see in film and just within 15 minutes you learn that how he just destroys that man's face with a glass bottle and it never breaks and then he kills the farmers he executes both of them just because and then they find out that they they had they had a viable excuse for what they were doing and where they were and he doesn't care and he he also has, he hates himself in a way, and he you could probably say that he hates himself as much as he hates other people. And I think Guillermo shows that clearly in one of the scenes that he's shaving where he's looking in the mirror and he tries to slit his own throat in the mirror. He, he slits his own thoughts, ref, reflection's throat. And he clearly hates himself because he's basically being taunted from the dead by his father. And you can only imagine how hard his father was on him, not to justify anything he's done, but clearly the result of what his father did to him and his father is constantly taunting him from the dead with that broken watch where he, he died in battle on a field and he broke his watch the moment he died so that he could always show his son, this is how a man dies on field, this is when I died. And he, he's always carrying that watch, he's always looking at that broken watch and he's obsessed with fixing it and getting it running and, and also his, his like chamber looks like the inside of a watch, there's like these large gears around him so this, this watch of his father's last taunt is always on his mind. He thinks that in his father's eyes, he was probably never good enough, so he never will be good enough in his own eyes. Yeah, and you can, con- you can contrast Vidal with the Pale Man. And they both sit at the heads of these very large tables with a bounty of food. They both consume the lives of the innocent. Just like the Pale Man eats children, Vidal kills Ophelia at the end of the film. They're both power-hungry in a way. Vidal's power-hungry with his fascism. The Pale Man, he uses his his bounty on his table to lure children in and entices them with the food. And as soon as they take a bite of the food, that's when he goes to attack them. Whereas in the captain does the same thing. He lures those citizens, those special high-class citizens with a bounty and a feast to control them and their actions, you could say. So they're very similar characters, almost complete mirror reflections of each other. I mean, the Pale Man is... Literally, what nightmare fuel is made of, (laughs) (laughs) for real, dude. It's unbelievable. I squirm every time I watch that. Yeah, it's unbelievable creature design, and it's so disturbing when you see the murals in his in his basement with like he's just like eating children. It's really disturbing, and I think that the metaphor of the buffet, I think it serves a very important metaphor for the film, in terms of a, a religious metaphor because. Uh, Ophelia is told not to eat the fruit not to eat the food not to touch anything and not and just to get in and get out and she's warned multiple times that yeah. the monster eats children yeah exactly and so I think that that bounty of that buffet of food on the table uh, represents the Garden of Eden and the grapes she takes you could say are the apple that Adam and Eve bite into and the pale man is the snake and and it's a metaphor for the original sin uh of humans being inherently uh filled with sin and i think that ophelia is literally carrying out the same act as the adam and eve story yeah that's interesting for sure but i also look at it you know why did ophelia eat that grape despite obtaining the the dagger that she had to get the obtaining her mission succeeding for that part and um and even though she sees in the ceiling those disturbing beings of this monster that eats children, and I always also wonder who, who painted those. Maybe the monster painted them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, if I had to guess outside of a symbolic reference of why she ate the grapes, you know, Ophelia has been living in this civil war of Spain, and she's been living in extreme poverty. She's probably malnourished. And to see such a lush and juicy looking grape, she obviously couldn't resist herself. And her reaction to just eating a grape is like, this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten in my life. And also, Ophelia was punished the night before where, remember her mother says, you're going to bed bed hungry without a meal because that's the night that she ruined her dress when she went under the tree. And so I'm sure she was starving She's at this starving. point. But I think it's it, both of those are probably correct. Yeah, I, I think we can definitely. And this monster is just terrifying because he collects those shoes as trophies, which can, of course, also be a metaphor for the Holocaust, where children and, and that millions of children and adults were just killed by a horrific fascist regime, and they're remnants of just like the clothing and whatever was left behind of those people, and they are kind of like ghosts that just disappeared from the world. Yeah, I think that. Uh... Del Toro took a lot of inspiration, especially from Schindler's list for that part. And also, I think that you could compare Vidal to Amon Goth big time. I would, 100%. Uh, yeah, 100%. And, and the, the Pale Man is so creepy. And Doug Jones, once again, with his with his physical performances, is, is so memorable. And, and it's so terrifying when he's when it's chasing Ophelia through the hallway and and her chalk door closes up and she has to open a new one I think that's one of the best moments of the film and she finally wisely goes to the ceiling so she can shut it on its face yeah his design it looks like Guillermo wanted to create a monster who looks like it just sits like that for ages like centuries millennia maybe it just sits in that position and so like no leg muscle growth and just flabby oh, yeah. skin hanging down and it's just like that arched back. But also I like to to think why why doesn't have eyes in its head and why can it only use its eyes in a tan and you know, it only has those nostrils in its head? Maybe because it's it's a monster of such evil nature that it can it's so blinded and obscured the view it has of the world that it can only see things in a certain way. And the pale man also inspired by the painting Saturn Devouring His Son by Francesco Goya. Um, I think he was a Spanish painter at the time of That's the a, Spanish yeah. Civil War, too. It's a very famous painting. Yeah. And, ma- and that could be symbolic, of the character. And that, that painting itself could be symbolic of the Spanish Civil War where this country basically consumed itself. Let's head on over to our intermission of this episode, which is brought to you by our sponsor, Manscaped. Use our coupon code RAIDERS of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping today at manscaped.com. Oh, I'm ready for this one. You ready for this intermission? So, those of you who are new to our intermissions, we do fun little trivia questions for each other and a movie quote contest. So, we'll start with the movie quote competition. Let's go. Um, you want to go first or me? I'll go first. Go first, yeah. we we'll mix it up. <laughs> Anthony's going to go first. Okay. Now we'll have to guess the movie. Okay, ready? <laughs> I'm ready. It's a fake, there's no crease in the paper. When your mom hands you a note to miss school, the first thing you do is you fold it. Catch me if you yep. can. And you put it in your pocket. <laughs> I mean, if it's real, where's the crease? <laughs> that's when uh, uh, Frank, Frank is uh, telling the girl to fold the paper when she's trying to skip class. Yeah. Good one. I, right. lo- I love that movie. <laughs> me too. I, I knew you'd get that because I know you adore that oh, movie. Dude, I've seen yeah. the movie like 20 times. Yeah. Yeah. Catch me if you can. is one of my favorite Spielberg movies. It's one it's of my, not, probably like in my top 30. It's underrated. It's, it's so yeah. good. We should do an episode on it. Yeah. Anyways. All right. This is a good one. I have two in case you don't get the first one because, yeah. It's All challenging. All right. not I wouldn't say it's challenging. It's just that I don't know how recently you've seen this movie. Okay. I met Sammy through work. Insurance. I was an investigator. I'd investigate the claims to see which ones are phony. I had to see through people's bullshit. It was a useful experience because now it's my life. Say it again. I met Sammy through work. Insurance. I was an investigator. I'd investigate the claims to see which ones are phony. I had to see through people's bullshit. It was a useful experience because now it's my life. Oh, I feel but like I know this. I'll give you another one, all right yeah because this one's kind of tough because it's a, it's a great script. My wife deserves vengeance. doesn't make any difference whether I know about it. Just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless memento yeah and you that one's easy because, that one's easy yeah, yeah. I want to give you the hard one first. yeah, nice. All right, now let's guess the movie release year. Okay, boogie nights. It's not the '90s, is it? It's the you '90s. You can't do that. Right, you, right. Did, you did this baiting thing last time. <laughs> you're like, was it the same right, years? Right, right, okay, begins? okay, 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 okay. No baiting. Okay, 2001. It was the '90s. Uh 97. 97. Wow. Magnolia came out in 2000. Yeah, I was trying to go back in his filmography. Yeah. Man, that's an old movie. Holy crap. It's Very old. Because I was also trying to like go through Mark Wahlberg's career. Think about how young he looks. In yeah, it. you're right. Yeah. He's a kid because that was the same. That was pretty close to Fear when that came out. Yep. Yeah. It was a couple years after Fear. All right, Unforgiven, 1992. No! <laughs> ah. Man, these release years are harder yeah. than I thought they would be. <laughs> All right, let's do a movie pop quiz. All right, I got it's uh, an actor actually in Boogie Nights. I did a Boogie Nights double special. It's Woo. a double feature. All right, let's go. Okay, Don Cheadle has been nominated for one Oscar. What was the movie? It was like his big breakout, big time. Hotel Rwanda. Yep. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. You got it, man. That's a great movie. Yeah. That is a tragic movie. Yeah. All right. In the Wizard of Oz, what was used to simulate snow during the poppy scene? What was the fake snow used in the Wizard of Oz? Oh, I've read this. <sighs> it's a highly toxic. Oh, it's um, item. I know what it is. Hold on. I'm just trying. It's it's the. Uh, it's in buildings. <laughs> What's that poisonous? Uh, can I call a friend? <laughs> I can't think of what it's called. Oh, uh, it's uh it's like super poisonous, and it's in wall in old buildings. I can't think of the name. Asbestos. Asbestos. Yeah, they actually used hundred yeah. percent asbestos, and they didn't know how toxic it was. <laughs> no one did. Crazy. It's like lead paint. Oh my god. It's good. That was a good one. All right, that ends our intermission. Let's get back. Into Pan's Labyrinth. Since we've talked about the monsters, let's get into, not the monsters, but the creatures, which I love so much. So the fawn, again, played by Doug Jones, is so fascinating. I love the design, the creature design. It was, it was actually almost completely practical, the the suit. Um, actually, it was all practical, where Doug Jones, he was in, like, the fawn suit. And his legs were, he was wearing green screen socks, basically, up to his knees. And so that allowed him to walk in this suit normally but it looks like the appendages of the legs kind of like they're still they're behind his yeah, leg they're, they're bent like bent backwards yeah, yeah. It's so like they, chicken feet yeah basically so they just cgi'd his legs out and the fawn's legs are like that and it gives them that interesting ga- like goat like walk and what is the fawn exactly so fawn's an ancient creature in in specifically roman mythology and greek mythology it's a half human half goat creature it's a symbol of peace and fertility and I, I love how you brought up earlier where the fawn on this movie it seems to both be trustworthy but also at the same time deceitful in a way like you can't is it always telling the truth is it trying to take advantage of Ophelia we never really know what its true intentions are because it's such a mystery to us and to Ophelia Yeah because what happens is at first he seems trustworthy at first but also he's he's very scary looking he's he's gigantic and he's a, he's a, like a monstrous creature so it's, it's kind of alarming, but he seems to be aiding Ophelia, and he seems to know a lot about her, and so she's very intrigued by him. And then what happens is after she fails the pale man test, when she eats the, the grapes and causing two of the fairies to be killed, uh, the fawn becomes very angry with her and tells her it's over. Like He's like, I'm out of here. You ruined it. <laughs> That's exactly what he says. <laughs> In Spanish. Yeah, but then... Mysteriously, he comes back to Ophelia, and he said he's giving her another chance. But it seems like he's keeping something from her, or he wants something nefarious to happen. And we ultimately learn that he is implying that they need to to take some blood from her baby brother. And but it seems like he wants to do more than that. It seems like he he he's like he's implying that they're going to sacrifice the brother to achieve the third goal so he becomes like a kind of a villainous person not person fawn the fawn basically comes into her life and tells her that she's this long lost princess of this secret underground world and she's has a chance to reclaim her throne at the end of the full moon but she has to complete three tasks and the first one is obtaining the key Inside the giant toad, underneath the dying tree in the forest, which she has to go inside, and she puts those three stones inside the toad, and it's really gross, and it burps <laughs> up like an embryo, or like a, it almost looks like um, what's it called when a woman gives birth? the the sac, the placenta that comes out. It's kind of reminiscent of that. I think there's a lot of um, uh, pregnancy. Uh, symb- symb- symbolism in this film, and that's I think one of them. And then she pulls the key out and she uses that key in the Pale Man's dungeon to get the golden dagger, which she gives to the fawn. But there's a theme of do- disobedience in this film where Ophelia doesn't do the final task in time for the moonlight, and that's when fawn goes away and disappears. And disobedience is all over this movie. You know, Ophelia is this character. Who right from the get go you can tell has a, a problem with authority. She's probably had this problem her entire life or entire chi- entire childhood growing up in Civil War Spain. Where when she meets Captain Vidal, she holds out her left hand instead of her right. She knows that it's her right hand to ha- shake someone's hand, but she purposely lets out her left hand. Um, again, that second mission doesn't go doesn't she doesn't do quickly enough. But she also refuses to call him her father. Exactly. So yeah. she does refuse to call a father, despite Carmen always telling her to. She also fails in that second mission where she lets two of the fairies get eaten because she ate the grape. She fortunately escapes. And then at the end of the film, another act of major disobedience by Ophelia is when you said that the final task is to give the baby brother to the phone to slay it, you can assume, or sacrifice it to enter the kingdom to get the drops into the port drops of blood into the portal. She gives up her throne refuses to obey the fawn, and she remains mortal on Earth to die like humans because she disobeys the fawn. So there's a lot of disobedience in this film. Also other forms of disobedience, the Doctor and Mercedes both disobey the captain throughout the story. The Rebels disobey the entire fascist takeover. And Ophelia disobeys her mother throughout the entire film as well. There's also um, this continued um, theme of threes, in this movie so you have three creatures the frog the fawn and the pale man and then you have um three members in the royal family ophelia and her two immortal parents in the underworld you have three tasks that she has to accomplish um and also three people in her family ophelia carmen and captain vidal so threes and also uh three fairies as well yeah that's that's a good point actually purposely done by del toro there's a really inter- interesting way that Ophelia kind of enters her fantasy realm, you could say, which is actually j- you just made me think of is when she tells the stories to her mother's pregnant belly, to her to her brother, to tell him fairy tales to calm him down, and she you know tells that fairy tale tale of that that single rose on the top of that mountain that make anybody immortal, but no one's everyone's afraid to go grasp it because all the poisonous thorns that surround it, and, and she seems to use the womb. Of her brother to, to kind of enter that realm and enter that fantasy world, and again, there's the there's fallopian imagery throughout this entire film. You know, the the fawn's head, the book when it becomes red, when her when her mother is almost having that miscarriage, um, the tree itself looks like fallopian tubes in a way, and the bed frame even. So there's a lot of uh, you can say pregnancy imagery throughout this entire film, and even like I said, the to- when the toad. Burps up that sack. There's even... Um, uh, the fawn's head is on the the bed frame. Yeah, that's well. what I meant, the bed frame, yeah. Yeah, and then the fawn's head is also on the the front the front opening of the maze as well. And the, the staircase. The labyrinth. The bottom so, of the staircase. Yeah, so the fawn is everywhere, which is really interesting. All these little Easter eggs... Yeah, and also those could be probably clues that Guillermo's trying to show you that, like, this fairy tale is real. It's really happening because—and I, I like to go on the side, like, with you, where I think it's all true because that makes it more fun. This is real. It's not imaginary. It's not fake. It's a real fairy tale that's happening to Ophelia because one of the main examples, I think, is the chalk. So she gets this chalk from the fawn that any time she draws a door, it's a portal that can open, and she can open a door, like, through the floor or through the wall— and she uses that chalk to get into Captain Vidal's um, chamber later in the film, which was locked. So how could she possibly get in there if the chalk didn't help her get inside, you know? So I think that's one of the, the little hints that Guillermo's trying to tell you that it actually is real. It, it seems as though she activates the entire um, fantastical realm when she puts that um, eye back into the statue in the opening. It yeah. seems like her doing that uh, springs up, springs this story into action. And I, I think that the most telling sign that this is actually really happening to her is a scene with her mother who, um, when she, she's very ill, and then uh, Ophelia puts the, the mandrake and milk underneath her bed in the bowl. And then when the captain takes the mandrake and shows it to the mother, and Carmen. Like, yells at Ophelia and not understanding why this weird root is under her bed. Um, she tosses it into the fireplace in the fire. And then, once the once the mandrake root starts burning in the flames, Carmen goes into extreme um, labor immediately. And so, I think that that showed that there was a connection between the fantastical realm and the real realm. I can actually counter that with what someone would say if they believed that it was all fantasy. So, what you're saying is the mandrake proves that because the mandrake helped heal Carmen or make her feel better they were, they were ended up being connected yeah, you so, know, and so i think the mandrake took it took her illness away yeah so she puts the mandrake in the warm milk in the in the fresh milk to heal her mother who's had, who had that blood uh, almost miscarriage accident and so if you're on the argument that it's not real you could say that the reason why Carmen got better after that scare is because she was forced to bed rest without anyone near her. And you could say that, I could. you could argue that Captain Vidal is what causes her immense stress and fear. And maybe that's what causes her to go into miscarriage and causes her to go into labor. But, but because she's away from him for so long, she's able to recover and able to rest up and able to relax. But because whenever Captain Vidal is around, she can't relax and she's completely stressed out. And that's why... When the mandrake is thrown into the fire because Captain Vidal is there, you could say that's why Carmen goes into labor because she's so stressed out because Vidal is there. No, you're right because Vidal, he's yelling at both of them and it's extremely um, stressful. And so that could have set off um, the labor for yeah. sure. And that's you can, a great point. And you can tell that on—and you can say in the opening of the film when they're in the car there— Carmen's very sick to her stomach. And yeah, you could say it's because she's pregnant, but it also can be because she's so stressed out that she is bringing her child to this person who she knows is a monster and knows is the father of her child. A man is the real monster in this story. And that's the humanity has monstrous capabilities within it. And that is a sign of, you know, fascism uh, with this civil war and then also with the Nazi fascist movement and the Soviet Union. And, And I think that Guillermo... The reason why he said it in a war-torn um, civil war era of Spain is with this fascist um, takeover is because I think he's showing the the monstrous side of humanity and what what uh, what men are capable of to do of doing to each other. And there's one other instance where people who maybe believe that it's all fake and not real is at the end of the film when Ophelia is running with her brother after she rescues him from Fidal temporarily and is running with the baby to find the fawn in the labyrinth, and she makes it there, and she's talking to the fawn, and the fawn's trying to get the baby from her. And then Vidal is chasing after her too, and then when when Vidal shows up at the center of the labyrinth, it cuts to his point of view, and he doesn't see anything there. There's no fawn, and Ophelia is just talking to nothing in his point of view. But you got to also remember... So you could say that it's all fake because he didn't see anything, but you can also remember from his point of view at this point... Ophelia had just put a ton of sleep medication in his whiskey that he was drinking, so you can't trust his perspective at this point. But also, you can also say that she's not a mortal being. She's, she's in an immortal, so probably only other immortals like her can see something like the fun. Yeah, I think actually that's probably more accurate than yeah. stupid sleeping potion. <laughs> 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 no, you made a great point, man. I appreciate it, man. And I I love this ending because, I like I said earlier, I look at it as a happy ending for Ophelia because she's finally reunited with her family. And she gets to finally, I think, um, whether even if it is real and it's the magical part isn't real— you could say that she does enter heaven and she can finally know peace for the first time in her life and comfort, something that she's that she's been um, missing her entire life and her life has been devoid of. And also, uh, one of my favorite scenes is um, when Captain Vidal meets his end when he exits the labyrinth with his son and the rebel forces are, are just standing there waiting for him. And he gives his son to, Car- to um, Mercedes... Mercedes he gives he gives his son to mercedes and he begins saying that he he tell give this watch to my son and i want him to know and she cuts him off and says he's not even going to know, you, know your name and then they kill him and i think that death is the second worst thing that he could have that could have happened to him i think that him his son not knowing who he, he will, will not his son not knowing who he is or was is probably was probably his biggest fear in life and the the last thing he ever wanted to happen. Let's head on over to our superlatives and let's uh, start off with who's the MVP of this film. And I'm going to actually just say it's Mercedes because she's like the ultimate protector in a way. She's living this double life. She's very brave because she's living with this monster Vidal, but she's also... Working for the rebels, her brother is Pedro, is the leader of the resistance in the that is located in the woods that Vidal is trying to track down and kill, and she's helping them with supplies and medication. So is the doctor, who is also a very brave person. And but Mercedes, she's so caring and helpful to young Ophelia. She makes sacrifices for her, makes sacrifices for the rebels. Um, and her and Ophelia are very mir- are mirrored characters in a way. They have similar story arcs where Mercedes and Ophelia both get a key. They both have a knife as a tool. And they're both ask- asked to give up their younger brother's lives. But they ultimately refuse both of those. You know that actress is the same lead actress from e Mama Tambien? I thought I recognized her, man. Yeah, I, thought I did, sir. That's, that's a good choice. My MVP is Doug Jones because he does so much in this movie. And he makes the fantastical believable, and I, the the amount of suffering and pain and discomfort that guy put up with five every hours day. of makeup, yeah, and just being in those heavy suits. Like, apparently, the horns on the fawn alone weighed ten pounds each. Yeah, and plus the whole head that he's wearing—it's all mechanical, and somebody's operating these these components inside his head. He can't hear anything. He can't yeah. even hear what Ophelia's saying. Yeah, and I think that so many filmmakers—the first thing they'd want to do is to make the it CGI and make it like motion capture but what he does making it real and keeping it an on set practical effect makes all the difference in the world and i think that he makes the world and this film better what's the best scene the pale man scene oh my god so scary terrifying. yeah terrifying so scary. scene i squirm every time i watch it, she's running away from the pale man yeah oh man <laughs> um i think the best scene for well, for me is when pedro shoots captain vidal Right in the face. Right in his his cheek. Right in his cheek and his eye just rolls backwards. It's just like Jeremy Renner's death in the town. Like right in the cheek. (laughs) Best, Best shot. Best shot. My favorite shot in the movie is when Ophelia enters the tree and Guillermo gets this beautiful shot from inside the tree looking at her as she enters and she's basically like silhouetted like a doorway. It's beautiful. My favorite shot is the opening shot because it's in reverse and it's the end of the film. And I just love how the blood pours up back into her nose. And it's it's a really intriguing first shot of a movie. And it gets your attention right away. Yeah, you just love it because it's like a Chris Nolan shot. Yeah, in reverse. (laughs) It's inverted. (laughs) Best actor, I'm going to go with Ivana. She's phenomenal in this movie. An amazing child actor performance. Yeah, I'd say her too. She carries the movie. And she has some really great... Difficult emotional scenes that she pulls off, especially I think that scene when she's crying, talking to her brothers is a great, great Asking scene. her not to kill her mother. That's yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very emotional. Yeah. Best line. I would say the doctor says to Vidal, um, why when Captain Vidal asks him why he disobeyed him and why um, he didn't listen to his orders, the doctor says, but Captain, to obey just like that for obedience's sake without questioning... That's something only people like you do. And my favorite line in the film, which you actually brought up earlier, is at the end, right before Pedro shoots Captain Vidal, and Vidal's like, tell my son, tell my son. Then Mercedes cuts him off, and she goes, he won't even know your name. (sighs) Boom, right in the face. Mic drop. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Want to do some fun trivia? Let's do it. Stephen King attended a screening of the film and sat next to Guillermo del Toro during the screening. And according to Del Toro, King squirmed when the Pale Man chased Ophelia through that hallway, also my favorite, most disturbing scene. And Del Toro compared the experience of seeing King's reaction to winning an Oscar, which he eventually did with Shape of Water. You know, earlier you brought up how Guillermo is kind of a contradiction where he makes these horror films and he has, he's obsessed with monsters, but he's a super nice, gentle being in person. Stephen King's very similar to that too, where people are like terrified to approach him because he thinks they think he's like this evil. Like I love horror and all this. Whereas Stephen King is the same. He's a very nice guy. He just he comes up with such great ideas. He says it's because he's just terrified of everything. (laughs) He's also a Red Sox fan. Go Sox. Go Sox, kid. Yeah, let's go. Go Sox. It took five hours for Doug Jones to get into the pale man costume, and once once he was in it, he had to look out the knoll's holes in order to see what was going on. The coloring in this movie is phenomenal, and remember, this movie also won Best Cinematography, and it actually beat Children of Men, which Emmanuel Lubezki did, Alfonso Cuarón's movie. So that's like could go either way for me. Both films are aesthetically phenomenal. Um, I probably would have given it to Children of Men just because of the technology they created with a lot of those steadicam shots. I mean, the long, long shots. Um, but this is a beautiful film, and the the use of color is significant in this movie too. Where Del Toro points it points out to people that the scenes that with ophelia tend to have circles and curves and use warm colors while scenes with captain vidal in the war have more straight lines and use cold colors and over the course of the film the two opposites these two opposite colors gradually intrude on one another and there are later scenes that have the contrast of those warm colors and tones with the cold tones and there's a ton of beautiful shots and one of them is the fireplace in the bedroom and another one is at the end when there's the battle going on and, and Vidal is like surrounded by the blueness of, of the night and then there's the explosion behind him. So there's a bunch of beautiful contrasting shots like that. Yeah, this is the strongest early sign of Del Toro's vision, which often employs the contrast of blue and orange in his in his color palette. Most It's most prominently seen in the Hellboy movies and also the TV show he He created the strain. That vicious bottle attack, it actually comes from an incident in Del Toro's life. Del Toro and her friend were once in a fight during which he and his friends were just beaten up to a pulp in the street by a bunch of people. And he actually saw his friend getting beaten in the face with a bottle by one of these guys. And the bottle didn't break at all. So that always stuck with him with his entire life. And he actually used it in this film. That makes me cringe, man. The fawn in the movie was actually inspired by a lucid dream that del toro that del toro repeatedly had when he was a child every night he would wake up and he would see a fawn step out from behind a grandfather clock in his room that wraps our episode on pan's labyrinth please go to raiders of lost podcast.com check out all of our content head on over to patreon.com slash raiders of lost podcast become a patron today thank you so much really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you haven't seen this movie check it out adios amigos